there and welcome to this week's Frankly Golf podcast. I'm Valerie Melvin here with Frank Thomas. This is podcast number 31. And Frank, this week we are going to be talking about the fingerprint of your golf ball. Who knew Who knew that the golf ball has a fingerprint? <laughs> Sounds like a detective novel, doesn't it? Just a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, I think what's important as well that we really need to thank the USGA for this innovation there's lots of things the USGA does in science and research and technology that you probably haven't heard about. Um, and they do lots of things you might not be aware of. So this is a really good um, story to explain um, kind of some of the research that goes on behind the scenes over the years, Frank. Yes. And I think what's interesting is its application to what we all experience today and how, how technology and innovations move forward. So... Um, Maybe you can get started, Frank, and just tell us a little bit about um, when all this started and, you know, the overall distance standard uh, that you helped develop. Right. I think you're going to go back to 1890 when the Haskell ball was introduced. It's called the Bounding Billy. And uh, the authorities or the guardians of the game at that time decided that the ball was going too far and they needed to do something about it. And ever since 1890... Uh, between trying to introduce standards such as the size of the ball, the weight of the ball, and then back in when it got to 1942, they introduced the initial velocity of the ball. And uh, many of the USGA and, and even USGA specifically uh, decided that that was, that was it. We now had control of the golf ball. But in actual fact, uh, we didn't. Uh, because the aerodynamics of the golf ball hadn't been taken into account. So in 1975, uh, I joined the USGA in 1974. In 1975, I was given the project of st developing an overall distance standard. And the overall distance standard used a mechanical golfer called Iron Byron. Oh, I love Iron Byron. Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> it was uh, modeled after Byron Nelson's swing. And uh, it was uh, a very interesting machine, and we were able to adjust the launch conditions and set it up such that it would replicate a, a very good pro on tour, about the club head speed and the launch angle and, and uh, the, basically the spin weight, we had to try and control that as well. So we set that up and developed the overall distance standard in 1975 and introduced it. That didn't isolate any of the factors or the properties that in, that control the distance of the ball, the aerodynamic properties, as an example, and the spin rate. And it just lumped them all into one and said, put it on a tee and hit it with a, a mechanical golfer. And any ball that goes further than a certain distance was a violation of the rules. F funnily enough, the 1975 standard has been modified, slightly adjusted for increasing club head speed and a few other little things. But other than that, uh, the standard itself hasn't changed. It's been adjusted upwards with any modifi modification was made. But no ball has yet violated that particular standard. But uh, it, it was uh, not sufficient to because, because we knew something about the aerodynamics, but not very much. In the late 70s, I uh, made, managed to acquire a wind tunnel. It was a wind tunnel, which was only a low-speed wind tunnel, 
which meant that it didn't test anything um, any higher than 300 miles an hour. Uh, and uh, But it had a small test section, 10 by 14 inches. And we did fairly good work on it to determine some of the properties of a golf ball. But unfortunately, the lift and drag properties were so small and and the, the uh, disturbance in the air, or the, it wasn't really laminar flow uh, that we were looking for, and also the support system interfered a lot. So we had a lot of noise. And it was then decided uh, that to, to really understand the properties of a golf ball, instead of moving the air over the golf ball, we'd move the golf ball through the air. I see, I see. So was that when the sort of indoor test range was born? That's right. Uh, the team uh, at, I had uh, working with me, we decided that uh, not only should we move the, the ball through the air, but then we had to determine where it was and, and uh, you know, relative to time. And the distance that we just determined was about 70 feet. So that's when it was indoor, so we could launch it. And we had to get a launcher which would spin the ball at different spin rates and at different velocities. And, you know, the technology that you developed there, Frank, with the indoor test range, that was really, you know, the essence of discovering the fingerprint of the golf ball, i.e. the spin rate, the launch angle, the optimum launch conditions for the ball. Yes. Uh, we measured the, the aerodynamics of a golf ball at different spin rates and at different velocities and uh, correlated those two and determined what the optimum was or what they were and then plugged that into uh, a launch that we found for a particular ball speed uh, the you know it had us have a certain spin rate to get its maximum distance that was the optimization of the of the aerodynamic properties uh, and the ball speed and how has that been applied through the industry well obviously uh, people then decided to optimize their launch conditions and the manufacturers did that and there was a uh, a fairly significant improvement in in the distance that uh, golfers were hitting the ball because they were optimizing it. It increased the distance about probably about uh, ten to fifteen yards just through, through the optimization. And uh, the uh, but the clubs weren't capable of of launching the ball at its optimum conditions until the metal wood came in and specifically the titanium club. Uh -huh. And when we think about, you know, how this knowledge of launch conditions has been applied, you think immediately of launch monitors, don't you? So, I mean, did that sort of build on the technology that was developed and the understanding that everyone had of, um, you know, the, those launch conditions? Absolutely. The, um, the uh, whole science of, of, of this whole model that we would develop uh, was uh, we uh, let the manufacturers have that and they then obviously went ahead and changed the club design uh, to allow golfers to optimize their launch condition and then because of the titanium uh, which was increased the size of the club head to make it more forgiving in other words increasing the moment of inertia of the head uh, at the same time unbeknownst to them they had a spring-like effect and that was uh, something that it, uh, can, was added to the optimum launch conditions. So optimum launch conditions and the spring-like effect uh, 
gave gave the manufacturers or the golfers the ability to find their optimum launch condition, and that increased the ball. That uh, increased the the um, the distance about another eight yards. And how do you feel about um, golf ball fitting, Frank? Do you think it helps to be fitted for a golf ball? Is it sort of a useful exercise to kind of at least narrow down the choice a little bit? I think that the balls are so good today. The premium balls are very good and the next layer down are still extremely good. So I don't believe that you can really optimize or uh, customize balls too much. Uh, I would go for a sort of second level for most golfers uh, rather than the premium ball, although only because of cost, not because of, of, of uh, performance. Uh, the premium balls are, are costly, but everybody can use the premium ball and be able to get as much out of it as possible. The superstars are able to discern the differences in, in the premium ball, but more so on the short game rather than on the distance. And do you, do you think when you look for a golf ball, what, what do you prefer to look for in a golf ball if you were choosing one for yourself? Would you go for distance or would you go for feel and performance in the short game? I think most golf balls go the same distance if you're close to your optimum launch condition. And so then I'd look for uh, short game properties. And I think all of these things you can now, because of the technology that the USGA introduced uh, uh, in in this area, in the indoor test range, uh, it's the same technology that's used every day in launch monitors with a, with a general ball in. So even though every ball has its own fingerprint, the fingerprints are looking more and more the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, have you managed to find a, a ball with a fingerprint that goes straight? <laughs> <laughs> I, wish, I wish we could. Uh, We're still no, looking. That's, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the backspin and the sidespin, you can't get only backspin. If you could get only backspin, you'd have it. Oh, well. Well, listen, thank you so much, Frank, for sharing your knowledge and that. That's extremely interesting. Now we all know that our cute little golf balls all have individual fingerprints. They're not just, you know, they're little individuals. And yeah. so that's why you really go have to go out your way to find them if you do hit them into the woods. Right. <laughs> well, listen, uh, thanks, Frank. And until next week. May the frog be with you.